Well, this morning, there's a lot in my heart and on my mind that I'd love to um, discuss together. And so we're just going to kind of zoom through a lot of content. I imagine like uh, a speedboat with this sort of glass bottom zooming along a crystal clear, beautiful lake. And you can see beautiful things through the glass bottom of the speedboat, but you're moving so fast, you're covering a lot of ground. So that's what it'll be like this morning. I love lists, so there will be a few lists for you. Um, but hopefully there will be some things that you can, can grab hold of as well. So first, I want to start by, um, there's a lot that we just read. It's kind of a long narrative, a long story. So I want to start by filling our imaginations with the story we read. Like you would fill your imagination with any good story that you read and encounter. You don't just read it, but you experience it. So y'all know that one of my favorite stories is Harry Potter. And uh, I read Harry Potter years ago as the books were coming out, meaning like, you know, I'd read a book and then I'd have to wait what felt like a long time until the next book came out. Um, So that was years before the movies started coming out. And you can't help but when you read Harry Potter to fill your imagination with these images and pictures and people and places and magic spells and all this different stuff. And so I wonder if any of y'all had this experience when the movies started coming out. I love the movies now, but initially I didn't like them because they were so different than what I imagined in my head. Did any of y'all have that experience? In fact, I realized that I was even saying some of the names wrong, like Hermione. In my imagination, that's not how you said her name. And so what I want us to do this morning is, is fill our imagination and experience, in a sense, this story that we just read together. So the story takes place in an ancient city called Ephesus, which was an important city on the sort of western side of Asia. It was a port city. And Jamin preached last week a sermon where the Apostle Paul shows up in Ephesus for the first time. And Luke tells us that he spent some time there, like he spent three months reasoning with Jews and Greeks in the temple, like Paul does. That's kind of his flow. That's his pattern. Uh, But then Luke tells us, the person who wrote the book of Acts, that Paul spent about two years there in Ephesus. So I don't know if you're like me, but as I imagine these stories, sometimes I picture Paul just like breezing in and out of places, like a quick vacation in Corinth or Ephesus or Philippi, but he's spending significant amounts of time in some of these cities. So he's here in Ephesus um, for a couple of years, and we have here in Acts a few of the different stories of things that took place when he was there in Ephesus. The story starts, there's just craziness all around in these stories. Crazy stuff happened in Ephesus. Um, So the story starts, again, if you were here last week, Jamin preached, uh, Paul shows up on the scene and meets some people who were disciples And he asked them, he says, have you received the Holy Spirit yet? And their response is intriguing. They're they're like, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul, it says, baptizes them into the name of Jesus. And as soon as they're baptized into the name of Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit. And these crazy things start happening. So that's an important theme through Paul's time in Ephesus, through the whole book of Acts, is like the ministry and power and work of the Holy Spirit. Because right after that story, we see these crazy few sentences where Luke tells us that like miracles were happening 
through the Apostle Paul. In fact, miracles were happening even through like articles of clothing and aprons and handkerchiefs, like kind of sweat rags that Paul had used. People were like going behind him and I guess stealing his stuff because just like coming into contact with something that Paul had touched and used was enough to heal you. It's crazy stuff. And then we see that people are impressed by this. Like word is spreading. Remember, Paul's there for a good bit of time. So word is spreading. Uh, People are hearing about these miracles that are taking place. So there are a lot of frauds around who are trying to imitate the apostle Paul. Uh, Maybe they're doing it just to kind of like spread their own renown to like make a name for themselves. Maybe they're doing it to make a few extra dollars um, to manipulate and scheme people. And so these frauds pick up and uh, there's a particular story of seven men who are frauds in this way, who are trying to perform miracles, imitate the apostle Paul. They're called the sons of Sceva. If you were here last week, you heard, this story is just so crazy. Um, It happens right before the text that we read this morning. Uh, So these seven sons of Sceva are interacting with um, what the NIV says is an evil spirit. I like, for the sake of telling the story, to use the word demon. And uh, these seven sons of Sceva are interacting with a demon, and they say, hey, in the name of the Lord Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, get out. We exercise you. And the demon replies, and the demon says, we've heard about Jesus, and we've heard about Paul too, but we don't know who you are. And then this man, this demon-possessed man, like overpowers and starts just like beating up on these seven grown dudes. And he overpowers them. He's, the ESV translation says that they're mastered by him. And he beats them down, strips them of their clothes, so they're like completely humiliated. They leave the place like naked and bleeding and humiliated crazy. And then in verse 20, it says, in this way, of course, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Like, isn't that a crazy story? I can't help but laugh as I read that story. But then yesterday I was doing this sort of exercise, like trying to imagine and experience these stories. And then I realized like, man, this is like, this is like that old movie, The Exorcist, or a movie that I watched growing up at far too young of an age, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Gosh, it's so creepy and scary. This is like that on steroids. So like I laugh about it, but it's crazy stuff happening here in Ephesus. And then comes the story that, that we read this morning where we see a riot that breaks out in the city that's led and instigated by this man named Demetrius, who's some sort of silversmith who earns probably a really good living uh, making little shrines. Ephesus was the center of um, what's called cult worship for this goddess Artemis, this goddess named Artemis. And so Demetrius uh, was some sort of leader in this kind of silversmithing industry uh, where he and others made silver shrines for people to buy, and they were making a good living doing it. Now, of course, the message that Paul was uh, proclaiming confronted their kind of economic systems, their economic systems for success and power and stability and income. So Demetrius gathers a crowd together, a big crowd. It says that some people like didn't even know what they were there for. Like they're like, oh, something's happening over here. Let me go see. So there's this big crowd gathered and they're rioting and they're raging and they're mad. And Demetrius is stirring them up saying, hey, our economic means, like they're threatened by the message that Paul is proclaiming. 
And not only that, but our city, like the reputation of Ephesus, depends on the reputation of Artemis. And the message that Paul is proclaiming threatens that, like threatens the influence and importance of our city. And not only that, but Artemis herself, the message that Paul proclaims threatens her and her quote unquote divinity. So finally they get so riled up. Paul isn't even there. Paul is what's called an unseen character in the story. He's not even there. So a town clerk has to stand up, calm the crowd, dismiss the crowd, and the story sort of ends, boom, like that. So there's a lot there. There's a lot there happening. I'm like, man, how am I supposed to do this in 30, like what, what is there for us here in 30 minutes? But let me sort of summarize in just a couple of sentences, there's something really attractive and compelling happening in these stories. So let me summarize in just a couple of sentences what I see happening. Followers of Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit. And through these spirit-empowered disciples, the kingdom of God is expanding and flourishing in the world. As the kingdom of God moves forward, it confronts and challenges systems in the world that oppose the way of Jesus. Let me read that again, and then let me unpack it briefly for you. Followers of Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit, and through these Spirit-empowered disciples, the kingdom of God is expanding and flourishing in the world. As the kingdom moves forward, it confronts and it challenges systems in the world that oppose the way of Jesus. Let me unpack these two sentences I realize are sort of loaded. So let me unpack these. First, followers of Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's an accident that this is how the story of Paul's time in Ephesus begins. The story I just shared about these disciples receiving the Holy Spirit when they're baptized into the name of Jesus. And this ministry and power of the Holy Spirit sort of progresses. You saw it progressing through the story, like the miracles that Paul was doing. This sort of models the larger, the larger narrative of the book of Acts. Y'all remember, man, it's been a long time. A long time ago when we looked at Acts chapter one and then Acts chapter two where Jesus tells his followers, his disciples like, hey, I'm gonna leave you, but it's actually better for you that I go because when I go, you're gonna receive the Holy Spirit, the comforter, my presence with you. And then of course, in Acts chapter two, Pentecost happens and the disciples, followers of Jesus are just hanging out in the upper room and boom, the Holy Spirit falls. And this sort of Holy Spirit power progresses throughout the book of Acts. So followers of Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the second part of these couple sentences through these spirit-empowered disciples, the kingdom of God is expanding and flourishing in the world. Kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but that's one of those phrases that in church world, we sort of throw out a lot. Kingdom of God. But a lot of times it's like, what does that really even mean? Like if you're honest enough to ask the question, like what is kingdom of God? What, what is that? I wish, I wish we could spend until 5 p.m. tonight, but we won't. We won't, don't worry. I wish we could just unpacking kingdom of God, those three words, but here's just in a quick nutshell what, what I mean when I use that phrase, kingdom of God. Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples how to pray and he models for them what we now call the Lord's Prayer, gives us a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God is. This, this phrase you're probably familiar with in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now, when we say thy will be done, of course, what we're implying is that God's in charge and we celebrate and we want God to be in charge. We want the rule and reign of Jesus to take root in the world. We pray in the Lord's prayer, thy will be done. But we also say thy kingdom come, meaning that we desire that this rule and reign go forth and come that God's ways become our ways. We desire that people and creation itself would lovingly surrender to God as king, that his kingdom would come. And then the last part of this sentence is on earth as it is in heaven. So we desire that like all of this is happening in God's space, heaven, but we desire that it would happen progressively more in our space on earth that the knowledge of God would move forward and fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, that God's rule and reign would go forward. That's the kingdom of God expanding and moving forward and flourishing on earth as it is in heaven. And so this, these two sentences again, if those things are true, then this last sentence is necessarily true. A little bit of logic and reason for us, you know? Um, So if followers of Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit and are being filled with the Holy Spirit and through their ministry and love and labor in the world, the kingdom of God is moving forward and is flourishing, then that necessarily means that as God's kingdom moves forward, it confronts and it challenges systems in our world that oppose the way of Jesus. Now, what that means is something that as, air quotes, modern people, we sort of shy away from talking about. What this means is that there are ways and patterns and systems and structures in our own world that are opposed to the ways of God. And as we desire for God to be king and for God's ways to take root, we desire for confrontation and for challenge to happen. There's a natural confrontation that happens when God as king meets unrighteousness, right? There's a natural confrontation that happens when God as the perfectly just one encounters injustice. So God as the true and good and just and righteous and benevolent and kind king naturally confronts and challenges injustice and unrighteousness and unkindness and wickedness in our world. And we shy away from this conversation, but this is really good news because God is a really good God. He's kind and he's benevolent. Things that you see and encounter in the world that you think like, man, something just feels off there. God is the one who can come and make wrong things right. There's a scene, I won't read the larger quote, um, but I'm rereading the Chronicles of Narnia series. And so somehow little tidbits of it it make their way into every sermon that I preach. But there's this scene when the four children from England show up in Narnia for the first time. And you may remember if you've read the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or seen the movie, which of course is not as good as a book. Um, This is a theme, like movies and books. I don't know why it is. Uh, But there's a scene when they're talking with the beavers. You remember the beaver family? 
And for the first time, Mr. Beaver is sharing with them about Aslan. And they've never heard about Aslan before. But C.S. Lewis writes that at the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Like God as king, God as king is what our hearts really long for. It's what we really need personally and corporately. So God as king means that God naturally confronts and challenges systems and ways in our world. And this is what we see happening in Acts chapter 19. In fact, in verse 19, I didn't mention it earlier, but there's this weird verse. Let me read it for you. It says, a number of the sorcerers, a number of the sorcerers or magicians who had formerly practiced sorcery, they brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Wow. And then, of course, with this riot that Demetrius stirs up, it's, it's a question of, like, who's on the throne? If God is on the throne, then is there room for other gods as well? So as you hear me, like, especially this verse, verse 19, like all the sorcerers getting together and burning their magic books, you've probably never had that experience. But it might stir up in you, it does for me, memories and experiences and stories in your own life, maybe that were not healthy or good, and maybe that you're trying to get away from. I'll give you an example. So for me, growing up, I remember going on school trips. And when I went on school trips, if there was a long ride wherever we were going, I would take my portable CD player, you know, that's supposed to be skip-free, but it still skips all the time. Uh, my son, Graham, he's listening to CDs. He listens to Andrew Best CDs all the time. They're awesome. And he's, he's like, why, why are these? He just can't comprehend why things would skip um, as he's like throwing the portable CD player around the room. Um, so I'd, I'd go on these trips with my portable CD player, which meant you had to take CDs with you, right? And so I had, man, in my day, I was an aficionado of um, emo and punk rock music. Come on. Yeah, and so I had this giant CD case. Looking back, I'm like, man, this would take a whole suitcase to carry my CD case alone. I don't know how I did it, but I'd carry this giant CD case with me. Do any of you all have those? I still have it in my trunk. I can show you after the service. And I remember the day when I realized, like, hey, you know, there are some CDs in here that are bad, and there are some CDs that are good, and they honor God. And so I didn't take it as far as some of y'all might have taken it, but I did separate with this divider in my big giant portable CD case, like Christian worship music and then secular music. And I think the dividers even had like a Bible verse written on them. But at least I didn't burn them. Come on, did any of y'all, I still have all those CDs and I'm glad that I do. At least I didn't burn them. So the question is, is that, is that what's happening here in Acts chapter 19? Is that what's happening here in Acts chapter 19? I don't think so. In fact, um, there are these two writers and thinkers, scholars, Philip Yancey and um, Amy Sherman. And they talk about three unhelpful ways that Christians today react to the broader culture. And I think this is one of those ways. So let me just briefly mention these three ways that Philip Yancey and Amy Sherman talk about Christians react 
unhealthily, unhelpfully to the broader culture. The first way is, is fortification. And I think this is what ha- was happening with me when I was a teenager with my CDs. Fortification. Fortification happens, as the, as the word itself implies, um, when Christians feeling anxiety and fear take a sort of defensive posture and they withdraw from the broader culture. And therefore they create this kind of like, air quotes again, Christian subculture that's safe and good and holy. So they're protected in this little bubble and they don't have to interact with the broader culture. Some of y'all, many of y'all, I know your stories, many of y'all grew up experiencing this unhelpful reaction to the broader culture. A second unhelpful reaction to the broader culture is what Philip Yancey and Amy Sherman call accommodation. Accommodation. Now, this is when Christians get so absorbed in and they're so enamored by the broader culture that they lose the, the distinctiveness of what it means to follow Jesus. Because followers of Jesus are distinct in the world. The people of God are distinct people in the world. And so essentially they fail to, this is an important word, they fail to differentiate, differentiate. Now this is a word that's been thrown around and used a lot in um, sort of family systems counseling and psychology. And let me give you the definition from the person who first talked about this concept of differentiation, uh, Murray Bowen. This is what he wrote. Differentiation refers to a person's capacity to define his or her own life's goals and values apart from the pressures of those around them. So accommodation happens when Christians fail to differentiate and we lose the distinctiveness about us, the the saltiness. Jesus talks about the salt of the earth. We lose that because of our accommodation. Now, I would say that I think for many of us in the room, because of how we experienced fortification growing up, this withdrawal, this anxious defensive posture living in this sort of Christian subculture, I think our danger as a reaction to that is to experience accommodation. This is probably where most of us are most likely to to slip up with these three unhelpful reactions. Because the third is um, domination. And if you fall in this category, like your being at Christ City Church would just be really hard and probably wouldn't last very long. Domination um, is when Christians, again, in anxiety and fear and maybe even rage, they don't go on the defensive, but they go on the offensive and they get aggressive and they try to, quote, win culture back which is an insane phrase. On, this is, that's a conversation for a different day. Uh, I was gonna say, on, like, only a white Christian man could say that there's anything to win back, right? Amen? Like, if you're a person of color, like, you don't wanna go back. Or if you're a woman, you don't want to lose the rights that you've... Anyway, it's a different conversation for a different day. Domination, culture wars. This is, these are the things that we see and that like, we're just inundated with, this sort of like aggressive, angry, winning culture back. Uh, mentality, domination. So my question is, these sort of three unhelpful reactions to broader culture, do these look like what's happening in Acts chapter 19? I don't think so. I think there's something unique and special happening in Acts chapter 19. And I wanna show you this threefold pattern. Again, I said a lot of lists today. I like lists. 
Um, I'm an Enneagram three, so three, list of three. Um, this threefold pattern that I wanna show you from here in Acts chapter 19, I think this could be really transformative and really helpful for our church and will probably sound really familiar to some of the things that we're already doing. Um, so the first part in this threefold pattern, I'll just give you the three up front, B, C, and love, B, C, and love. So the first thing is, we should be students of the Apostle Paul and just watch and look at the way that he interacts with the cultures in which he finds himself. And as you watch and as you observe the Apostle Paul, what you see is that he simply is. He's simply being. Paul isn't so moved by anxiety and fear, though I'm sure that he felt those things as his life was threatened multiple times. Paul isn't moved by anxiety and fear to make himself smaller than he is. Paul is definitely not making himself small and withdrawing in this sort of defensive, fortified stance. Paul's just being. He's also not as a sort of anxious and rageful position. He's not trying to make himself bigger than he is. He just is. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's confident in Jesus and in this message that he's proclaiming. In fact, I mentioned earlier that Paul is an unseen character in this story. Like Paul's not even, if this were a movie, um, this riot in Ephesus uh, that's led by this man Demetrius, if this were a movie, like we wouldn't even see Paul there. Like Paul wouldn't be even, he wouldn't even be in the movie unless there were like flashbacks or dreams that people were having, right? Paul's an unseen character. Like Paul isn't against Demetrius. Paul isn't attacking Demetrius. Paul isn't aggressive or offensive against Demetrius. Paul is simply filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaiming the message about Jesus and the world. And as the kingdom of God moves forward, it confronts and challenges the ways of the world. So Paul simply is. He's simply being. This is why I am so excited about and I so believe in our church's eight practices. If you were around during the season of Lent, we preached for eight weeks on these eight practices, things that we as a church are doing and embodying and practicing together. Because I think with these eight practices, if you just trust the process and learn what it means to practice these things, to, to choose presence and be a present person in the world, to seek health, to cultivate spirituality, to, look, to learn what it means to worshipfully and devotionally and thoughtfully and maturely engage with God's word and pray and be in relationship with God, cultivating spirituality. As we practice all of these things together, we will learn what it means to be not human doings, but human beings. Not having to like puff ourselves up and make ourselves bigger than we are, not having to withdraw and make ourselves smaller than we are. That's the way we see Paul interacting and operating within these cultures. So being leads to seeing because being fuels awareness. Being fuels awareness. As you cultivate this sense of being in the world, you won't withdraw, you won't dominate, you won't accommodate. Instead, you'll be really aware of God's presence and you'll be really aware of who you are and so you'll have this sort of self-awareness where, you, where you'll be able to see and observe and know what's going on inside of you. And sometimes you'll experience like, man, what's going on in me 
Like what I'm experiencing right now, the things that I'm putting my hands to, like they just feel off. Have you ever felt like that? Like, like there's a lack of alignment here. Like my ways and my purposes maybe aren't aligned with God's ways and God's purposes. There'll be this new self-awareness that you'll experience and live into. And then as you're self-aware, and I hope that it happens in this order, self-awareness first, and then awareness of what's going on around you. I think most of the time it happens in the reverse order and that's really damaging and harmful and we've all experienced that. But as you're self-aware, you'll start to be aware of things around you. You'll start to see things. You'll be able to see with new eyes. The Holy Spirit's there. And you'll be able to see like, man, the presence of God is here. There's blessing here, but like something here just feels off and there feels like a lack of alignment with what's happening here and with God's purposes and God's ways. You will interact with, this is really important. This phrase is really important. All of these three unhelpful ways to interact with the broader culture are fueled by anxiety and fear. But as you learn what it means to be and see in the world, you'll develop this sort of non-anxious posture. We are not overcome with fear and moved to anxiety or rage as you interact with friends and neighbors and culture. Instead, as you see, you will find yourself like with, with new and healthy anger to engage when you see injustices and when you see oppression and when you see things that simply should not be. And then lastly, love. I would argue that when you're being in this way and when you're seeing in this way that you can't help but to move towards people and situations and systems in a loving sort of non-anxious posture. Let me share with you um, a very small example that I experienced just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I had a meeting scheduled downtown. I arrived at my meeting a few minutes early, or not a few minutes, an hour or so early. And so it was intentional. I meant to do this so I could have time to stop at a coffee shop. Um, I've just realized, like, with two small kids, like, I just have to have coffee in the afternoons. Um, like, if I'm going to make it at night, like, I just got to do it. So um, needed my afternoon coffee. And so went to a coffee shop, had some time to kill. And so I was just able to sit and enjoy coffee and to sit with my journal and to simply be like to stop doing and just to simply be. And so I got to spend some time writing and reflecting and being aware of what's going on inside of me. I'm reflecting on what God's doing, meditating. And then as I left my meeting, I encountered um, a person, a neighbor in our city who's experiencing homelessness. And honestly, um, this happens to many of us often. Um, and when this happens to me, when I have one of these sorts of encounters, if I'm honest with you, I'm often super not present and super not engaged. And I just interpret this as like an annoyance and an inconvenience and something that I've got to get away from quickly, which seems so opposed to the ways of Jesus. Like when I read Jesus, like that just seems so dramatically opposed to the ways that he operates in the world. But on this day, I was approached by um, a neighbor, a man, an older man experiencing homelessness. And the way that I interacted, my experience was completely different. We had a conversation for a few minutes and it wasn't just this sort of like transactional exchange. 
But it was like this real thing where we were able to talk to one another. And because I was being, I was able to see like, man, this is, this is a person, this is a human who has dignity and worth and value and God loves him and I can love him too. But I was also able to receive like on this particular day, like I needed some encouragement and maybe the Holy Spirit empowering this man, he was able to give me the encouragement that I needed on that day. And so it was this beautiful, quick conversation that resulted from this threefold pattern of being, seeing, and loving. So I want to close with, um, with a story of, um, not my story, but a story of this Jesuit Catholic archbishop. Um, a little while back, I was away at a silent retreat at a Jesuit retreat center. And so I saw this phrase and this phrase like stuck out to me and like, you know, um, like pings were going off. Like, I'm like, this is it. This is it. This is what I want to be about. And this so well describes Christ City Church and what I see us wanting to be about and what I also just see us sort of doing naturally. I saw this phrase at this retreat center um, that describes Jesuits. And this phrase is, contemplatives in action, contemplatives in action. I want to read for you a quote. It's in the back of your bulletin. It's from um, Philena Huritz's new book called Mindful Silence. And a quick, unashamed plug, she'll actually be here in about a month and a half for a rabbit hole event. Um, and she'll be talking through these sorts of spiritual practices that have helped her cultivate spirituality and relationship with God. Um, so here's a quote from her book, which is really good. I'm reading it now. She says, through activism, we confront toxicity in our world. Through contemplation, we confront toxicity in ourselves. The two go hand in hand. This is contemplative activism. It grounds us in divine love and allows us to be a channel of that love, being, seeing, and loving, contemplatives in action. So I want to share the story of a saint who was recently sainted named Archbishop Oscar Romero. Oscar Romero was an archbishop of the Catholic Church in El Salvador during a very tenuous season in El Salvador's history, at the very beginning of the civil war that happened there in that country. And he was an archbishop who spent his life working against poverty and oppression and just myriad and myriad and tons and tons of um, injustices in that country. And on March 23rd, he gave a sermon at a mass, March 23rd, 1980. Oscar Romero gave a sermon at a mass. Now the civil war in El Salvador had just started up and the military controlled government of El Salvador was brutally oppressing its people. Like tons and tons of human rights violations happening, like poverty, like just, just a really, really hard time to live there. And so in that sermon, Oscar Romero talked about these exact things that we're talking about this morning. Let me read for you just a couple of quotes from his homily that he gave. First, the church is indicating at every historical moment 
what reflects the kingdom of God and what does not reflect the kingdom of God. She, the church, is the servant of the kingdom of God. What a beautiful summary of all the things we've been talking about this morning. The church is indicating at every historical moment what reflects the kingdom of God and what does not reflect the kingdom of God. And then he went on to directly confront the soldiers who were participating in this massive oppression and human rights violations. And let me read for you this longer quote, directly challenging and confronting these unjust ways. I would like to make a special appeal to the men of the army and specifically to the ranks of the National Guard, the police and the military. Brothers, you come from our own people. You are killing your own brother peasants when any human order to kill must be subordinate to the law of God, which says thou shalt not kill. In the name of God, in the name of this suffering people whose cries rise to heaven more loudly each day, I implore you, I am begging you, I order you to stop in the name of God. Stop the repression. What a strong witness and a strong voice for the kingdom of God, challenging and confronting unjust systems and ways in our world. Oscar Romero preached that sermon on March 23rd, 1980, and the very next day as he was celebrating a mass, he was assassinated. He was gunned down. And Oscar Romero followed in the path of his Lord and our Lord and his Savior and our Savior, Jesus, who both Jesus, Oscar Romero, and countless other men and women were willing to give their very lives to see the kingdom of God, the rule of Jesus, his just and good ways take root and burst forth in this world so that our world can be a more beautiful and just and good and benevolent place under the rule and lordship of a good and just and benevolent God. And so now, like we do every week, we get to come to the table and we get to remember and be filled up with and interact with and encounter this crucified savior who is willing to give his life for you and for the sake of the world. But he's also a risen savior, a risen Lord. And later on, we'll be sent out with a benediction, the words to which are intentional. We say them every week. And I want you to pay, pay special attention this morning to the words that we say in the benediction as we're sent out together to be agents of renewal, the kingdom of God in this world. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer is that you would show us as we come and encounter Jesus in the sacrament of communion, that you would show us what it means to be a people filled with the spirit of God, empowered by the spirit of God, through whom the kingdom of God is moving forward in the world. The kingdom of God confronting and challenging unjust systems and ways in the world. Show us how we might participate 
filled up with Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.